Oh, Heavenly Father, we exalt you and your glory today. We have nothing to show save the cup that you have filled already. We have nothing to show but the miracle of grace in our own hearts. So we offer back to you that sovereign work that, we, that you have done and we cherish in our hearts. We simply offer back to you out of the joy overflowing at the knowledge and meditation of our salvation, the glory, the praise, the honor, and the worship that is due your name. Knowing that it just scratches the surface of what your eminence deserves, Lord. And your eminence portrays to us, Lord. But we are thankful for this time and for the opportunity that your word affords us to add to our ability more to say, more concepts to grasp, more holy thoughts to think, more powerful declarations to proclaim, more power, Lord Jesus, to ascribe to your greatness, more understanding of your word and your rule. Lord, a better knowledge of your future and your past and the fact that you rule and reign for all eternity. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be so enamored by your greatness that we look for every opportunity to harness more categories of our thought and affections, to give over towards worshiping and glorifying your name. And now as we open your word together, I pray that it would produce in us, Lord, by the power of only your Holy Spirit, writing it on the tablets of our heart, a deeper desire to know you and a greater boldness to proclaim the truths of our Lord Jesus Christ, applied to our heart, and now giving us the ability to proclaim, according to your great commission, the glorious mercies, graces, and triumphs of our God until one day you call us home. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I'd invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 23, even as I'm inviting my son Israel up to say a couple things to you this morning. So Psalm 23, you know about that psalm, don't you? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me. He leads me beside still waters. And he restores. He restores. My soul. My soul. Very good. Do you have anything else to say? There's only one holy city, and that is heaven. Awesome. Thank you, Israel. Israel had those verses on his heart and that message about heaven that he wanted to share with you this morning. It's a fitting introduction to our psalm. If you would turn with me, if you haven't already, to Psalm chapter 23. Let's let's read these, I trust, very familiar words together. If you don't have them memorized as Israel does. Verse 1, this is a psalm of David we read. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. If you would keep your finger there, as it were, and turn with me to Psalm, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 40. In a moment, we'll be covering a parallel passage from that chapter. The title of this morning's message is Providential Superaboundings. You'll never guess where I found that title. Providential Superaboundings. Yes, it's from the Prince of Preachers and my mentor via his literature, Charles Spurgeon himself. Charles Spurgeon's commentaries on the psalm combined with the Puritan authors that he read were some food for thought for me this week as I was trying to scratch underneath the surface of I felt almost handicapped understanding of this psalm because of my familiarity with it, to be quite frank. That is to say that there might be a danger in addition to all the great and many benefits of knowing a passage of Scripture really well One danger that sometimes concerns me personally is the words sometimes lose their meaning as depth and weight in and of the concepts they describe themselves. And oftentimes when I hear those very familiar, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I instead have more surface or nostalgic or emotional relationship to the psalm. So sometimes going back and reading, for me, other authors who have thought deeply about Scripture, more deeply than I have yet, certainly meditating on it, praying, searching my heart, confessing sins, getting past my own boredom and my own flesh until I ask the Lord the right questions and contend with my own laziness for the answer, dear Lord, what is the depth and meaning of Psalm chapter 23? And then a few things, sparks of interest and flames of desire to learn more start to kindle their way into my soul. And then I find myself getting excited and freshly acquainted in new ways with something that is an old familiar portion of scripture. So what I'm hoping to communicate, if you can relate to any of those sensibilities, is something of that desire through our message today. Another way that is sometimes helpful for us to get reacquainted with the original perspective, with the author's intent, most ultimately the Holy Spirit, in communicating Scripture is to go to other passages of Scripture and to see other areas and ways and other shades of meaning and other underscoring realities that we see when we hear the term shepherd, for instance. And Isaiah chapter 40 provides us that. We'll read a few verses there in just a minute. This providential superabounding speaks to a few concepts. The first, namely, that it is our good shepherd that we his sheep depend on for absolutely everything. And although we live in a society that's um, in some ways, regrettably so, post-agrarian, so we don't have farms as often in our experience, we might be a generation or two removed to something like husbandry, tending animals, livestock, sheep. However, we're all familiar with stories of shepherds, and I've learned a few more pieces of information from the reality of taking care of sheep that might lend some insights on what David is getting at here, but suffice it to say, everyone can understand that a sheep needs guidance. And our shepherd, 
are wise, unsearchable in his wisdom. You cannot plumb the depths of his understanding. He sees the future all the way until I would say the end, but there is no end. He has known the past, ordained every event in history. This is our great shepherd. His ability to provide in his foresight both into the future, if he were even to be thought of as existing in the present, such as you and I do, but he transcends even that, and his view into the past is limitless. Therefore, can we trust our good shepherd to see what predator might, as it were, lie around the bend? Or to know where the next oasis in our wilderness wanderings, as life metaphors sometimes leave us feeling, to trust him that he knows exactly where we ought to go? So we see in the picture of shepherd, not just the distinction between a human being and his ability to reason and the sheep being instructed, but even immeasurably more as we consider how much more wise our good shepherd is even from us. Certainly to an infinitely greater degree than human reasoning is superior to a sheep. So in that sense, when uh, Charles Spurgeon uses providential, all of that idea of God's providence, his care, his superintendence, his charge and watch care over, his absolute sovereignty, his knowing the end from the beginning, his perfect wisdom, his unsearchable riches and kindness, his compassion is all wrapped up in that one adjective. And then he just adds to it superaboundings, blessings beyond calculation and comprehension. If you had a calculator and you were to translate and estimate into numerical value, the abundance of God's graces applied to you upon the death and the purchasing power of Christ's blood, it would simply defy categories of our fiscal understanding. You cannot put a price tag on it. It is right to call it priceless. It is right to call it precious. It is beyond human comprehension how superabounding the blessings of the provisions of our good shepherd are for our souls, for the preservation of our body for his will here, and for the riches untold that we will experience in glory. All this is wrapped up in these few short verses that we are familiar with and love in Psalm 23. These concepts are also throughout other passages of Scripture. We read John 10 in opening our service this morning. Now I'd like to lead you through some verses in Isaiah chapter 40. We'll begin in verse 12 and then return to verse 11. Before we read just a moment, I'll give you the main points of this message. Number one is our shepherding Lord. And my reason for reading verses 12 through 18 of Isaiah 40 are to give us an idea of what the word of God would have us associate with the term shepherd. Because Isaiah 40 makes it clear that it's more than what I've described thus far. Namely, the husbandry role of taking care of sheep. It transcends, the idea of shepherd in scripture transcends even the agriculture or the uh, livestock and shepherd metaphor. And here we begin to see these ideas attached to our shepherding Lord that are so amazing that I'm going to run out of words to describe their glory. There's three other passages or three other points and that relate to our passages this morning. I'll give them to you briefly. After we discuss our shepherding Lord, Then we'll discuss the lay of the land, 
the effective or effective lodging, and fourthly, living in Psalm 23. So that's just a basic structure for presenting Psalm 23 and hopefully a way that quickens our love and appreciation for the Word of God this morning. Quickening our appreciation and love for our shepherding Lord and then recognizing the lay of the land as His sheep under the tutelage and direction and providence and watch care of our shepherd. Thirdly, discovering the concept of effective lodging where we can be safe and at home secure and sound within the sheepfold of our Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Good Shepherd, and finally applying these principles to our lives today, living in Psalm 23. Here we are in Isaiah 40. Read with me verses 12 through 18. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Span is from the elbow to the forefinger, a cubit. Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure and weigh the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge And showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken our God? Or what likeness compare with him? Again, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? After blowing us away with the furthest reaches of our comprehension, and then saying our God is greater and infinitely so than any of these things, Isaiah says, with whom then will you liken God? And it's as if the rhetorical question rings out with no suitable answer in our limited comprehension. Not enough words or concepts, not enough ability for us to describe or contain or grasp the immensity, the enormity, the glory of our God to answer that question. Yet the word of God for our benefit gives us so much to chew on in that regard. And as I was going back over these verses, I realized that they are connected to a description of our Lord, which we'll read in moments in verse 11 that describes him as our shepherd. But consider three categories under our shepherding Lord. He is a shepherd who has the supernatural realm under his authority and dictate he designed, he ordained it. And he set every atom worrying in its exact position according to his will and decree. Within the material universe, in verse 12, we read, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with his span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. So the very metaphors of greatness and our tangible understanding in the universe above and the mountains 
It's difficult for us to imagine grasping a mountain and moving it out of the way, for instance. That's why the Bible uses these analogies to describe the greatness of our God. Only He and He alone can give the power to take a mountain and cast it into the sea. Or to ordain that it be mounded up in the first place. We read of our shepherding Lord in Isaiah 40 verse 11 that the waters of this universe over... Every particle that is frozen in ice in a comet or in a distant planet, everything that is liquid on the surface of this earth, everything that is steam within the atmosphere, all of these atoms together are insufficient to wash the hands of our great shepherd. They don't even fill his palm. He can measure them right here. They're tangible and limited to him where we are so finite and small that they seem to us that we could never exhaust or plumb their depths. Not so with our Lord. The natural realm is within the palm of His hand. We read of our shepherding Lord, that His cubit, as it were, from His elbow and to His finger, if we are to take this anthropomorphic language, which means for our benefit, the Bible uses human terms to help us understand something, just a sliver, just a window, just a crack, into the idea and revelation of how big God is. But our shepherding Lord is so vast that the heavens themselves are the equivalent of our shepherd's solitary cubit. From his elbow to his forefinger is the expanse of the known reaches of space and beyond. The Hubble telescope, as far as it's able to peer into the universe, has not even encountered his wrist. It's perhaps moving up his forearm. Perhaps not. We'll never know, probably. But the cubit of our God is best understood in the unfathomable reaches of our universe. Our shepherding Lord, as we see him over nature as its creator and dictator and superintending Lord and shepherd, we see him lifting a tiny vial as a scientist would close to his eye with perhaps a monocle there to get you the picture in your head for a minute inspection. And what is he looking at? He's looking at a translucent thimble full of the sediments of the entire earth, the terrestrial expanse. And here he is again, pictured like a master chef. He carefully weighs the ingredients of all of the material atoms in the universe. And he has formulated the geological elements, every bit of matter that makes up the intercontinental mountain mountain ranges, ones that we can never hike over in a lifetime, ones that strike and inspire awe even in our age where we're so easily distracted by other things, who cannot help but pause and stare as they're approaching mountains in the distance on a western drive, even across these continental United States. And it says, if you drive and drive and drive, and the mountain looms and looms and looms, and this God has weighed in the palm of His hand. This God has set carefully on a scale and measured to the nth degree. This and all the sediments therein contained are in a tiny vial. And He measured them out just so. The scientist of the universe, the chief architect of all that we can see. This, our shepherding Lord. But if not enough to appreciate the greatness of our God, which we view in the natural universe, then the author of Isaiah, namely Isaiah, obviously, moves to the metaphysical realm. 
He says in verses 13 and 14, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Where did God get his inspiration? Was there ever a set of encyclopedias on his shelf from A to Z to know what to create? What is the source, authority, limits, and meaning of knowledge? That branch of philosophy is called epistemology. And Isaiah identifies the epistemological preeminence of our God. There is no knowledge apart from Him, and knowledge stems from Him. He is, He is the source, authority, the limit, the meaning of knowledge and understanding. Who has ever been His teacher? Who was ever there to be his tutor, to give him advice, to correct his way? No one. He is, he was, and he is, and he is to come. This is our great shepherd. Metaphysical preeminence. The author of the meta-narrative of all of history, reaching into the deepest depths of my own vocabulary to try to come up with words that, to grasp this amazing philosophical reality of God's eternal self-existence. He is inscrutable transcendency. He is the causeless cause. He is the self-existent, eternal, creative genius. He is the archetype of all being, all personality, all reason, all consciousness, all value, all beauty, all nobility, all power, all glory, all prestige. As we see in other portions of Scripture, In particularly, I'm thinking of the Proverbs and their Psalms of Wisdom as well. His Son is wisdom personified. We read in the beginning of John that there Jesus Christ was as wisdom as it were in the beginning with God and was God. And again, the limits of our human understanding are stretched to the very expansion, almost to the point where they might break if we were to be able to understand this. It's as if we would have the mind of Christ himself. And I thank the Lord for his promises that we can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, understand him more and more. But what a glorious vision for sanctification as we embrace the mind of Christ and understand that Jesus Christ is wisdom personified prior and eternal, the wellspring and everlasting fount of glory, the matchless first cause of knowledge itself. He is, and he was, and he forever will be. Those are two verses in Isaiah 40, verse 13 and 14, O sheep, that describe our shepherd. Verses 15 through 17, behold, the nations are a drop from a bucket They are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. And you see the very tangible, limited, and minuscule language coming out. And what is it used to describe? Our most tangible and impressive demonstrations of authority. Those empires that think they have exalted themselves above the knowledge of God are torn down in an instant, are dusted like so much that is settled overnight on the master and the master's scales. As we read of this, his administrative predominance, this unrivaled dominion, this unparalleled, unchallenged government and authority and jurisdictional prerogative, we see in just these few verses alone that in our good shepherd, 
And because of his greatness, all nations drift into minuscule obscurity. And the Lord holds them in derision, as Psalm 2 says, and laughs from the heavens if they should ever, ever operate outside of the fear of him. He breaks them, as it says in that psalm, like an iron rod against a jar of clay. And that picture I love, we've talked about in discussing that psalm in the past. What if you were to paint scary pictures on that jar of clay? Would that protect it against a rod of iron? No! What if you were to write declarative statements of authority? Kings raising themselves up as gods. Would that protect the jar of clay against a rod of iron? No! You better beat him or you will be crushed. He is the stone that the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone. And if you are not broken at the awareness of his self-existence and authority, it will crush you like powder and dust you off the scales. Into hell and judgment eternal, the nations are a single drop in the watering can, as it were, of our great shepherd who alone can sovereignly preserve them or instantaneously dispatch them according to his unsearchable wisdom of his holy will ever flourishing in the garden of his glory. This is the extent of his power and authority that he governs nations, the universe, and everyone, and all being, and all conscious and reasoning man. He is over them. He is the king of kings. The nations are but dust on the scales of the good shepherd who might blow them off from time to time as a grocer might when he's there weighing his produce, not because they'll compromise the weight, but because they might get his fruit a little dirty as it were. So as not to dirty the produce, let's just blow the scales clean. And this is the picture of how minuscule the nations are if they are to compete with the greatness of our good shepherd. The greatness of the nations in our eyes representing the most tangibly formidable of powers and the golden age of earthly bounty. Never was there an era and never will there be any one of them who could ever hope to as much as supply sufficient fuel by its old growth timber standing sea to sea, let alone sufficient sacrifices, even if it's every last beast of the field was slain in an offering to the deserving glory of our great Shepherd, empires, kings, alliances, epochs, civilizations, regimes, edicts, industry, legacies, governments, fortunes, wars, war machines, revolutions, religions, defenses, executives, treaties, campaigns, idols, enemies, principalities, philosophies, cultures, celebrities, heresies. It doesn't matter aristocracies, conspiracies, armies, policies, when all these things are found categorized in the celestial books of history. The God alone balances. They are counted in their sum as nothing, yea, less than nothing. Add them all together. Anything negative as proposed by man, anything that he exalted as positive, they are but nothing before the rod and the staff of our good shepherd. And then we ask, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? He's like the greatest nation that ever was. No, that would be to belittle him. He is like the waters, the expanse across the sea. No, that would sell him too short. He is like a great mountain that stands between an army and blocks their path. No, that would be too small. 
He is like the expanse from here to the known universe. No, that is only his cubit. To whom then will we liken God? Or what likeness compare to, with him? And then I'll bring you back to verse 11. We've been holding out for this one. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. To whom will you liken a God so great as we are attempting by process of elimination alone to grasp and imagine by simply getting our two small preconceived ideas of the biggest things that we can imagine out of the way to make room for him. To whom will we liken him? He is like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gently lead those that are with young. And in this picture, I'm brought to my knees. How can a God that great be so knowable, close, and compassionate? Does it make sense to the natural mind that someone so vast and so powerful would care for you and I as if we were a lame sheep and his precious possession, his property? And he's got, he's counting on what he has invested in your soul and he will preserve and purchase it. Even when you are wayward and wandering against all odds and beasts of the field and the enemy of your soul. Yes, he will. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you would visit him? And suddenly the Psalms cry out with this sense of amazement and just as amazing as it is, To peer into the heavens and to think of a God as over and bigger than them. Just as amazing, perhaps even greater, is the thought that a God so eminently huge can be so imminently compassionate. And this is the sense that I feel was awakening in my soul as I returned to Psalm 23. And I'll return you there as well, if you would. When we hear not just any shepherd is one that we should follow, But the Lord is my shepherd. What are we to think of when we think of our Lord? Well, certainly at least what Isaiah has declared and what we've just meditated on. He is Lord over all the material universe. He is the metaphysical origin of everything. He is the supernatural superintendent of everything past, present, and future. He is the administrative authority over anything that ever was and ever will be. He is the concurring reason that everything exists and all will ultimately give him glory one way or another. And no challenger to his throne will ever prove successful, but indeed will glorify him in their failure and judgment. It's amazing. This is our Lord. But he's not just that. He is also our shepherd. And I shall not want. Second point, the lay of the land. You want to get me some batteries, Seth? 
How prosperous is the land and how great is his care for us and provision for us that our good shepherd leads us into. Well, this is obvious. This is limitless and beyond all our understanding and our ability to calculate in as much as his very namesake is attached to it in in the book of Romans, for instance, that God did not spare his son. And in so doing, are we not promised that he will give us everything, paraphrasing, for life and godliness? Pardon me one second while I change batteries. One, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Though these words are so close to the heart, close to our experience, and so tangibly compassionate to us in this language, when we understand that our Lord, our shepherding Lord is the one that spun the planets into motion, ordained the breadth of the universe, and has power over everything, this world this, and, this glo- and this universe over from sea to sea and beyond, then we can start to see that it's not as if he almost found us a green pasture or we were almost starving and at the end of our rope. But fortunately, he came through in the minute and in the last minute and against all odds found something for us to chew on. No, this sustenance and the provision that our Lord and shepherd has for us, the lay of the land and the land that he leads us into is land that he created in the first place. It's grass that he commanded to sprout as it were. It's rivers that he carved with his, the finger of his very word, as it were. It's the provision that overflows from the bounty of his, of his transcendent and eternal wellspring of life. And even though this world exists to this day under a curse, if it is our Lord, shepherd, our shepherding Lord that guides us through it, we shall not want In this first, there's perhaps two ways that we can understand the lay of the land as we walk through the meantime, as we discussed in in last week's message, between now and glory. What is that lay of the land? Well, according to this psalm, we have the promise that we will be sustained in different ways. We will be sustained in those times of repose and rest and waiting. And we will be sustained in those times of action and moving and travel. We see this scope of God's grace on our lives when he says in verse 2, He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. There are these times in the life course of a sheep where he needs to be refreshed and renewed. He needs to be rebuilt and restructured. And he needs to be nourished and strengthened before he can face the next challenge at hand. And during those times where rest and repose are the imperative so that we can continue doing the good work of the Lord. We lie down in those green pastures and our enemy 
cannot, he is not allowed to take advantage of a weak moment because our Lord shepherd guards us during that time of repose and refreshment and rest. But there are these times when we are called to go into a land that we haven't seen yet. We can't understand quite the reason God is bringing us there. And we're called to walk not by sight, by faith, but we can do so following our Lord and shepherd. And we think of his sheep as it were through history and the scriptures. We think of Abraham called away from a land of repose. You could think of it as a place of security and civilization and a fairly comfortable and safe lifestyle. And for someone who grew up in a pampered city existence and probably wealthy class, if not middle class, at least to take his whole family and move them livestock and all and become a mobile civilization is quite a step of faith. How could he do so if it was not for faith? And the answer is that Abraham followed his shepherd and Lord. And we have his testimony. If he held his God in such high regard, the God that came down and revealed himself in fire and passed through those sacrifices and covenanted with him and said, for my name's sake, I will never break my covenant. If our God has covenanted with us and we have the evidence of that in the blood of his Paschal lamb and son, Jesus Christ, we can follow with perhaps even greater faith than Abraham, our Lord and shepherd, wherever he would lead. Even if it's for a period of time where we don't have the creature comforts to rely on and to pretend will give us security. And life by its afflictions and challenges is placing a greater demand on what will be our source of peace. To the greater challenge around us, will we be proportionally more anxious or will we return to the refuge that Psalm 23 represents and trust that our Lord and shepherd can both make me lie down in green pastures and lead me beside still waters. And in this sense, the waters are there attending us on the way. So his provision was there for Abraham. His provision will be there for you. No matter how wearying the travel, he will never bring you farther than your legs will take you. And if he does, he'll carry you at that point. There's a picture from a shepherd's account that I read preparing for this message. A wayward sheep, one that is prone to wander. The mischievous had to learn the hard way type of sheep as we are so often. A lot of times in his compassion for the sheep and also in his guarding of his possessions and property, a shepherd will break the leg of that sheep and then carry that sheep. And what he has done in bringing this affliction on that sheep sovereignly as it were for that time is to create a dependency, a relationship of dependency between himself and that animal. So by the time that sheep is healed and whole, he understands his good shepherd on a far deeper and more intimate and dependent perspective than he was privileged to prior to the affliction. And now we're starting to get one more piece of how God's sovereignty, even even in pain, suffering and afflictions, might serve his greater purposes and correct you or I if we are prone to wander. He has the right and prerogative to do exactly that. 
And we can understand in the context of our understanding here that if he afflicts us temporarily for a time, if it is for the preservation and benefit of our soul, it is certainly a mercy. It is nothing by which to question his his authority or his compassion. Absolutely not. And said to surrender and submit and lay down our ideas of what we think a God of love will do. A God of love will go to great lengths to preserve your soul, even when you do your best on your foolish insecurity and wanderings and painful regret and stumbling, backslidden states, besetting sins and otherwise. A good shepherd will take authority over sheep's wandering. And if they wander too far, might just introduce that affliction so that you stay with him closer than ever. By hook or by crook, quite literally, so that he will lay you down in green pastures and lead you beside still waters and restore your soul. We see that God sustains us in these ways, in rest and direction. We also see that under conditions that would otherwise utterly shake our faith and destroy us, God has proven faithful. So how far can we trust our good shepherd? What if there's lurking enemies about? And what if the circumstances lend themselves to a heightened state of panic and danger and fear? Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When I read of the valley of the shadow of death, and I connect that to the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I see that when the conditions are most threatening to what we need, when we perceive by the circumstances around us that what we need to get through our day is least likely to happen or most easily wrenched from our grasp, nevertheless, Our good shepherd who holds this universe and measures its waters in the palm of his hand can guide you through that valley of the shadow of death. You might be at literally death's door. And there we could confess this scripture as not an ominous one that death will come, but instead that death for us because of Christ alone who has defeated death itself is indeed a door into resurrection glory. But for every other moment where we are thinking we are but a step from death's door, we can confess with the faith that God is more prepared in his holy will for you to accomplish that I will not die but live and declare according to Psalm 118, the glories of God, declare and recount the deeds of our God. And though a valley of the shadow of death threatens to thwart my emotions, it will not threaten, never has and never will, God's intent for my life. He will see me through. I will fear no evil, especially when the shepherding Lord is with me, when his rod and his staff comfort me. And there we have the question answered, what implements does he retain to guide us in this regard? Well, if the shadow of death and darkness and if the threat of want comes from inside your soul or outside enemies, it's either a rod or staff that is sufficient in our good shepherd's hand to address either one. Enemies without, that would destroy your soul. We think of sickness, famine, pestilence, disease, oppression, enemies 
wickedness that surrounds us on every side, just dangers in our fallen world. There's a rod in the hand of our good shepherd to fight off the lion that prowls to steal and to kill and destroy, representing the enemy and his intentions if he could ever get close to the sheep. He cannot. There will be a rod jammed down his throat as soon as he gets within the proximity of our Lord and shepherd. But someone might ask the deeper and perhaps more troubling question, what if the enemy is within? What if the enemy is in ourselves and our own heart and our, and our tendency to wander, our predisposition to go every which way and to trust every other shiny thing along the path rather than our good Lord and shepherd? Well, there we find his staff is sufficient. His staff will grasp us right at that moment when we're about to fall off a cliff. Israel could tell you a little bit more about a shepherd and what it means to tend his flock. I asked him what a rod and a staff are for last night in devotions. He said a rod was for spanking. He said a staff, but a little more accurately, he said a staff had a hook on the end. It was to grab a sheep around the neck just in case you would fall off a cliff. And that's the profundity of a five-year-old coming out for you, giving you a vivid picture of what the Lord will do even when the enemies on the inside threaten to bring the shadow of death upon your soul. Doesn't matter how deep your past, doesn't matter how much loss, how many sins that you've committed then, it doesn't matter all the regrets of old, the depression that looms, the despair at your doorstep, it doesn't matter the failures, doesn't matter the identity crisis, or the lack of anything you shall not want on the outside nor on the inside, because his rod and his staff is sufficient against the enemy of your soul, be it in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, or be it on the outside, only to be his, only to recognize your good shepherd's voice, only to be counted with the assurance of faith that you are within his good graces. And what are those dear sheep? They are the assurances of the New Testament that rush into our soul. We confess and we believe that Jesus Christ's blood alone, who became the lamb, who became the sacrifice, the only one that could purchase our health and well-being both eternally and here, it's by the stripes and the blood of our precious lamb, Jesus Christ, that we can say with assurance his rod is sufficient and his staff is secure and I will never wander off the path if I confess my hope and faith in my good Lord and shepherd. And if you feel threatened and scared under the ominous shadow of that which threatens to steal from you and to bring lack and to bring want and return to the meditations of who your shepherd is. He is not just a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, like the flannel board picture in the back in the nursery. As amazing and comforting as that is, he is more. He is the sovereign Lord of all the universe who by the word of his power can stop the sun in its tracks as he did for his servant Joshua, who can speak the worlds into being as he did, as recorded by his servant Moses. It's amazing to think that our shepherd, so comforting and compassionate, has this kind of power. You shall not lack, neither inside nor outside, at the hands of your enemies or of yourself. And how will he do this? And why will he do it? We're reminded in verse 3 that all of this is for his name's sake. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
And we just read and expounded on the limits to some degree to try to grasp a greater idea of what his name represents. And if he is so jealous for his name that he would not be compared to anything lesser, that is the tenacity with which he will guard you, his sheep. He will have you. He will keep you. And he will do it by the power of his sovereign hand. The means takes endurance. The means happen over time. But with the eternal perspective that the word of God brings us, we can trust that the trials and the shadow of death is a brief instant. It's just a breath. It's a vapor. It's a snap of the fingers. And then we're with him eternally. And can you imagine the green pastures and the still waters and the river of life out of which springs the tree of life from which we will which we will retain and eat from eternally and receive into our souls the nourishment of revelation beyond compare. Such reality only heaven can contain. There's also effective lodging. I read in the New Testament in John 10 that our good shepherd has a fold in which he keeps us safe. We also read here that in spite of this relatively transient situation that God has us on. We're traveling more often than not. We're sojourners and strangers, aliens and and strangers in this world. As the word of God describes our condition, we can relate to the exiles, oftentimes in Egypt and to Abraham called away from his familiar surroundings or to those who are traveling as it were and have not found their homeland, their promised land, their heaven eternal quite yet but are living by faith according to a promise. But nevertheless, notice this language of effective lodging that we can feel as secure as, we, as if we had a home, even though we can sometimes identify with the Son of Man that had nowhere to lay his head. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And here the context is the security And the provision, the overflowing bounty, the cornucopia of a table and a home and a wealthy banquet prepared for us in Eastern culture. You would go and feasting was a time, was, or feasting was appropriate for a time when there was triumph and victory and peace. And when a table was prepared, it would be prepared upon the knowledge that we have entered into an era or celebrating a situation where there's resolve and closure and comfort. And we feast and we celebrate as free and blessed people. And this is the table that the Lord prepares for us, ironically, in the very presence of our enemies. If you remember in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where the lions were as ferocious as you can possibly imagine... I'm reminded of the imagery in some of the uh, Lord of the Rings pictures or something like in The Hobbit where you have these ghastly creatures that look like a nuclear experiment combined with some freak show that are drooling and fangs and everything and their eyes are glowing. And this is a picture of the enemies of our soul. And here's Christian in Bunyan's allegory. And he's meant to travel to that safe house with the light. And there's a watchman at the door. And the instruction is, is follow that narrow path of light. He does so in faith, not knowing, but soon finding out that though those beasts rage, they are chained 
And God knows and counts the links, and they cannot get to him while he is on the narrow path. And this is the table, the picture set before us in the presence of my enemies. The hyenas and jackals circle, the bulls of Bashan, as we've read, who encircled the Lord in the previous psalm. They open wide their mouths like ravening and roaring lions. They are those, these beastly predators. This is actually a picture of us at the crucifixion who are like dogs and lions and wild oxen. But even when we identify with our Savior and Lord and then become on the receiving end of persecution, what a comfort to know that there is a leash for every enemy of our soul and we can sit there and even scoff at our enemies as we partake in the table prepared before us. And no matter the foaming at the mouth, and no matter the wrenching at the chains, if we are in the good graces of our Lord and shepherd, he can feast, prepare a feast for us in which we can partake of untouched by those predators that lie just beyond the periphery of his watch care. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This imagery is too rich and detailed to go into very much here in this short amount of time. But uh, oil on the head reminds us of the consecration and setting apart of those of royalty and priesthood. Those who are set apart for a purpose. Prophets, kings, and priests were anointed. And they were done so by an authoritative figure who didn't do so flippantly, but did so under the direction of God himself. And the person who was anointed would certainly go forward with the confidence that that oil represented a promise of who he now was set apart to be and to become. Not just that picture, but his cup overflowing. And the cup imagery here reminds us of everything that we could possibly contain our lot in life, our station, that which God has privileged for us to retain and to display. And inasmuch as our entire life is recalibrated according to God to display his glory, our cup overflows with opportunities to demonstrate to the world around the riches of his grace if we follow our good Lord and shepherd. And finally, he says, surely goodness and mercy, verse six, shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And here's the ultimate manifestation of effective lodging. We can have the security as if we had a home secured in glory now because we will have a home secured in glory. As we've mentioned at Resurrection Sunday, Jesus Christ goes before us as the first to be received of the resurrection of the dead to prepare for us our mansion. And Lord willing, at the end of this difficult journey, which requires faith and does have enemies which prowl around and does have those ominous, luminous shadows of darkness, following our good Lord and shepherd, we will dwell in the house of of the Lord forever. And this is the ultimate of effective lodging. If we look at the course of this psalm and the shape as it were, it goes from a period of kind of journeying and following, depending and trusting, walking, all the way to a point of closure and purpose and security. And that really is a gospel shape in the narratives of scripture. We can identify that story with the children of Israel of old, first in exile, 
but then deliverance, then wandering, and yes, that questioning, but God proving himself faithful and finally settling in the promised land after God himself stills the waters of Jordan. We can see this shape, this gospel shape in scripture, <clears throat> excuse me, in the testimony of God's dwelling place itself. First, there was the promise to Abraham, I will dwell with you. And even promises that alluded to God's favor dwelling among his people even prior to. And then it took more tangible shape and form in the tabernacle. And eventually took place in the temple. And eventually is reposited in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we are the temple. And eventually we will dwell in his perfect presence forever. So we go from promise to journey to manifestation over and over again. In our own life, course and redemption, we're caught in sin. And then we come to salvation. Then there's this sanctification process. And ultimately, we're glorified. So we see the lifespan of the church during this age, this eschaton, when it finally will be consummated one day in glory upon the return of our champion, our Lord and our shepherd. But in the meantime, there was that calling of the church, the commission, and ultimately we look for that communion in glory as Revelation 21 prophesies, that consummation of all of history. There is effective lodging for his sheep. This is the lay of the land. It's there to provide. There is effective lodging both in promise and in manifest glory to come. And finally, we ask ourselves, how do we live in Psalm 23? How do we take these lessons that we're trying to grasp at a deeper level this morning and apply them to your challenges, your workday, Monday morning, perhaps tomorrow, or a phone call from a family member in distress or a question that you don't know the answer to, or a situation that seems that it has the power to destroy. What are God's means for shepherding his flock today could perhaps be the question that would lead us to the answer. In other words, it would certainly be foolishness for us to find refuge in Psalm 23, as so many people do, and not find refuge among his flock. There's two parties to put on the spot here. When we ask ourselves, what is the flock and how are we faithful to the context and to the fulfillment, conditions of fulfillment for Psalm 23, there's perhaps two parties to put on the spot and one is myself and I feel the weight of that as I bring this message today. There's a shepherding role that a pastor is to fulfill. Ezekiel 37, some of the strongest words against those who are unfaithful in this calling are reserved for those who do not walk faithfully to it. I need to be it. I will be. And every minister of the gospel, every person who purports to be a shepherd needs to be held to these kinds of standards. We read of these very quickly. You don't necessarily need to turn there in Ezekiel 37, verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. I'm sorry, that's the wrong passage. I might have written down the wrong one. But as we see in Scripture, nevertheless, that the indictment against those who would be unfaithful as shepherds is scathing. And why would that be the case? I submit to you because the stakes are so high. That is to say, when there is a healthy church, it produces the kind of environment that sheep thrive on. 
When in John chapter 21, Jesus delegated his shepherding duties symbolically to Peter, what did he repeat three times to emphasize its paramount importance? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So if those who are called to do so are falling short in that calling, then there will not be to the degree that we ought to entertain the context for proper shepherding. And this is why it is so serious that we take seriously as ministers our calling to do the same, but also as sheep our calling to commit ourselves to the flock. There's commandments in Ezekiel 34 that I was looking for where the prophet is commanded by the Lord to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. He tells him in verse 7, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declare the Lord lives. Surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves that have not fed my, and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to to their feeding the sheep no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves i will rescue my sheep from their mouths so that they may not be food for them for them and here's the frightful picture of wolves in sheep's clothing actually taking the office of shepherds pray for us pray for the church that there would be a true shepherding call that wouldn't thrive by taking advantage of the sheep, but would lay down their lives to serve the sheep. Pray for leaders, pray for shepherds, not ones who would squander the lordship of God's glory, who would cave under pressure, but who would lay lay their lives down. It's a fearful call, but God's power is sufficient. Even his rod and his staff can govern his sheep that's called to lead other sheep. But even as I feel the weight of this and holding myself accountable, I'm reminded in John 21 verse 17 of the commission to Peter. I'm reminded of the numerous passages that compare the role of fathers to pastors and shepherds as well. And so now the duty goes beyond just my role in the pulpit here to those of you fathers outside the realm of the, what we think of as typically a formal shepherding role. And it's incumbent upon you fathers as well to take seriously the conditions for living in Psalm 23. And again, I say only a fool would find refuge in Psalm 23 without tending well his own flock or finding refuge in a flock. Let us embrace God's means. Let us understand the lay of the land. Let us faithfully follow our shepherd and walk in it, trusting all the while if we are to veer to the right and to the left that he will sufficiently provide the correction. And though it seems grievous for a time, it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. And ultimately, as we are successful in any of this, to any regard, it will be because of and through our good shepherd and Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the perfect type and picture and fulfillment of shepherd for us is all we need to look to, to know how to follow and to know how to submit. I love the picture that we opened with in our message, in our service this morning of our good shepherd. And I think I'll just close with a few words from John 10. So Jesus again said to them in verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would hear our good shepherd's voice this morning. And if our spiritual ears need to be more finely tuned to recognize the tones of his beautiful voice, of his powerful authority, I pray that you would do that sanctifying work in our souls so that we can distinguish the voice of the stranger from the voice of the only one who can carry us through this wicked world to eternity unscathed. I pray that your glory would be manifest in preserving for yourself a remnant even from us. Those of us that fellowship here, that we might be counted among the same. Those who have trusted in your rod and your staff. Those who confess you as Lord and Savior. And those who after the final doubt is settled in their mind, placed their hope and faith in the shed blood of their Messiah, would recognize to greater degree with each passing day the voice of their good shepherd. I thank you, Lord, that you have ordained these means for us to walk in. And I thank you, Lord, that you have purchased our entrance into glory. I thank you that your power is beyond our reach and understanding and on its promise alone you will welcome us, Lord, into the ultimate and final sheepfold. We look forward to that day. Help us to trust in the meantime that we shall not want because you, our good shepherd, take such good care of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.